0: Meme machine, meme machine. I'm a motherfucking meme machine. Meme machine, meme machine. Without memes, I will die. Give me the memes. I need the memes. I smell the memes. I need all the memes, the memes. Welcome to One Dime Radio, hosted by me, One Dime, the YouTuber. And I am here with none other than Mike Watson, author of the book, Can the Left Learn to Meme? And the newer book being released this September, The Meming of Mark Fisher. Dr. Mike Watson played a role in my video, uh, Meme Warfare, which will be coming out at the same time as this interview. He oversaw the script and it actually also makes an appearance. And some of the ideas in the video are derived from his analysis. Today we will be talking about memes and memes as propaganda, as well as various ideas from his books, which we have a lot to learn from. Would you like to introduce yourself, Mike, and uh, what your work's about, as well as your YouTube channel that you do on the uh, acid left?
1: Uh, yeah, sure, hi, thanks for having me on. Um, so yeah, I'm basically a, a media and art theorist. I'm mostly focused on the link between, between art broadly culture and politics and 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 really the idea of a horizontal culture basically being uh, a culture where anyone can express themselves anyone can have a platform and the way in which the art world has been talking about horizontal culture for a long time firstly uh, via avant-garde art in the in the 19th and 20th centuries and more recently in museum programming where museums Um, government kind of culture departments, private art foundations, et cetera, talk about uh, making museum, making art space programs aimed at involving the public as much as possible and how so often that this doesn't really manifest and actually art is very elitist, yet we do have this kind of platform of culture, which is open to nearly everyone, which is the internet. Um, So we do kind of have, you know, a realization of the dream of, a cultural expression for all but it's not being used as we intended so i look at that and what we should be doing with that of course the contradiction being that one cannot say you know yes finally we have you know democratic culture so to speak uh but it's not being done how we want you know because you know when, when, once you give people the, the, the ability to say whatever they want you can't then turn around and berate them for making cat memes making selfies uh, Mark Fisher memes, for example, etc. cetera. So I'm looking at that kind of contradiction and and also the Frankfurt School and how we can interpret memes uh, through the theory of Adorno-Benjamin, but not just how they would have seen them, but how we can use their work as a departure point for assessing the value of internet culture for good and bad.
0: Yeah, in your Ken Learn to Meme book, you seem to place a, a rather optimistic view of memes And sort of looking through the lineage of art, how art was once very exclusive um, to bourgeois people, and sort of memes, while you can debatably call them art or not, I think you're you're not, you seem sort of on the fence about whether they are art. We can get into that. But uh, now with digital culture, we all have access to sort of, we can create uh, our cultural production. We can all do it. And with memes like this is good and bad, obviously we get um in many ways some memes with subversive um pedagogical potential, but on the other ends you just got like shit posts and stuff with no meaning. And in this new book, you talk about something called slow meming as sort of an alternative to the shit post. Can you tell us a bit about what that is? Um, Yep. Um, Slow memeing. Basically, in in
1: this book, which is called The Meming of Mark Fisher, how the Frankfurt School foresaw capitalist realism and what to do about it. So it is like really a, a book as much about the Frankfurt School and how they would view today's culture and how Mark Fisher is very much indebted to the Frankfurt School, a point which is made quite clear in his last unfinished book, Acid Communism, the introduction of which is published by Repeater books in their compendium of Mark Fisher uh, essays and texts, it's made clear in that text that that Fisher was um, very much thinking about the work of Adorno and Marcuse. Um, So um, in this book, I talk about how uh, the internet is responsible for the co-optation of left-wing culture. And how it's basically impossible to have a cogent kind of debate on the internet because the internet isn't really about putting forward ideas, it's about putting forward anything in terms of what will get people clicking. So um, it's not that the internet favours ideas which can be developed, it favours ideas basically which can be spread at the expense of um, a cogent development of, of ideas. So, you know, often one can't actually have a a, a logical discussion on the internet. It gets kind of distorted. So I use the example of Andrew uh, Yang, who ran for the Democratic candidacy and more recently uh, as New York mayor, but fell out of or dropped out of both races um, and how his um, Democratic president candidacy was derailed as people kind of um, made jokes about the universal basic income he was offering, over, I think it was a $1,000 a month. Um, and they kind of made these memes where people were using it to buy alcohol and drugs. And these memes sometimes involved very right-wing imagery because I think a lot of kind of people who memed Donald Trump and other kind of alt-right kind of uh, signifiers migrated into um, the Yang campaign to derail it or actually because they started to favour Yang over Trump because they could get this money, you know, so it's kind of a joke, Um, but maybe some of them were actually serious. But anyway, the the point is that Yang kind of used that to some degree or his campaign, but really kind of derailed his message. So it was just an example of how you can't often like put out a message hoping it to have a certain impact. Um, It gets distorted. Um... And that's just very much in line with the fact that one has to make kind of very quick, impactful statements on the internet, and you can't really control how they're going to be screwed once they're out there. Um, and what we need to do basically to stop that happening so we can, again, have a cogent discussion, because all this kind of favours the right, even if the right can't actually pedal a specific message, because it, it just kind of derails the left and is only useful for for the data economy. Um, So um, how we might get around that is to use the Internet's vast resources, which are a brilliant thing, and to basically try and slow them down. There's nothing to stop us using the Internet at a slower pace and having kind of more developed discussions. I'm not talking about debate bro-style YouTube discussions, though they also kind of work, um, you know, to some degree. But, you know, just a, a way of saying, okay, we have all this stuff, it's amazing in consideration of what we had 20 or even 10 years ago. You know, if someone talks about Adorno, you can probably find his major works in PDF, you know, immediately um, or whoever. Uh, so that has to be a good thing. And it's, yeah, I can tell you it's a good thing because in the, in the late 90s, you couldn't basically find Adorno sometimes in your own university library and certainly not in your local town library. Um, so that's really kind of increased the availability of critical theory to people. Um, But we need to then go with that. Okay, let's slow down and and use it differently. Let's also, okay, produce stuff and put it out there, but not just with a view to having a very quick uh, kind of laugh out of somebody or, you know, just having a very quick impact on someone. Um, But, you know, with a view to some kind of process of aesthetic reflection. So we could make memes that are actually supposed to be consumed more slowly and can lead people away from like hopping from one meme or video to another so that's basically the concept of the slow meme i don't know how how exactly it would happen i mean i've been kind of toying with this i think um acid communist memes of vaporwave kind of uh, kind of indicate how this could happen in the sense that vaporwave music is abstract and and and, and it's something you're going to spend time with and it kind of kind of leads you in a kind of floating you know it kind of it kind of leads you to that kind of sensation of, of of a suspension of of you know the normal kind of um f- shall we say false boundaries of capitalism according to normal false rationality you can kind of get lost in vaporwave in the way you might get lost actually in schomburg or Mahler or abstract painting or something and i think that being lost is what can maybe help us drift away from this need to be constantly plugged in which i think relates very much to capitalism and uh, numerical counts and uh yeah. making money and stuff
0: yeah, you you mentioned one thing there, um, a couple of things I wanted to touch on. But uh, there's about about Adorno and kind of how absurdist arts in a rational society has the irrational power of subverting what we perceive as reality. And it kind of can um, sort of break our boundaries that we have towards this reality. And I, I find I found that kind of interesting. He calls it the shutter effect. You mentioned that in um Your millennial Adorno essay as well, uh, in which you say the millennial generation and the Zoomer generation are Adornian generations. Um, But what does Adorno really mean by the shutter effect? Because I can kind of, in one sense, see with some forms of art, like film, for example, or really good documentaries or videos, kind of having this that have like this artistic flavor to them that give you this shutter. In some ways, I think Adam Curtis documentaries for all the Maybe political qualms I have with them. Adam Curtis has a bit of the Shutter Effect in his films because it's perfectly matched, uh, like hypernormalization is a perfect example. It has perfectly matched music with footage. It really kind of, I don't know, gives you goosebumps, and that's the the way I experienced the Shutter Effect. But what was Adorno talking about? It was he was he talking about art and like as in paintings, as in films, music. I think I, I think music, but. Um, what was he referring to? Because I have a hard time understanding it from that point, because I'm uh, obviously yeah. less immersed in the art in the visual arts as than you are,
1: yeah, okay. Um well, when Adorno spoke about the shudder, he was basically addressing a fault in human thinking. so so or just basically the, the the only way by which human thinking can proceed, which is what he calls identity thinking, um describing the fact that we Relate to the world by identifying it, by giving things names, by measuring things, and that's basically how we—that's how we control nature and the world around us, and actually other people. So um, it's a—it's a split between subject and object, it, the same as you often find in psychology that we individual we individuals, what we call the I, um, are very fearful of the outside object. Okay. What we call, you know, nature or you, or basically everything outside the individual eye. Um, So we proceed by trying to control nature and other people to kind of ward off the fear of death. Now this is problematic because it results in systems of control uh, within communities, within friendship groups, within families, within societies, it can lead to conflict. Wait, well, it does lead to conflict perpetually. Uh, but also, the other thing is that the nature we're trying to combat is actually in us. Um, we are part of nature anyway, so it's a full split, which you see in religion. You Adonis says you see in religion, mythic thinking, magic. So these are kind of progressions from magic rites to mythic thinking to religious thought onto science and capitalism. Um, and um, because these are false systems that basically hide the fact that we're, we are nature anyway, they all they all kind of turn in on themselves or rather the individual's attempt to control nature turns in on itself. So you end up controlling yourself via religion because you end up becoming obsessed by religious rights that you've kind of uh, construed to control nature or through capitalism, you get a similar thing happening. So what Dorno says is that um, we, we, we can only really uh, think outside this false identity thinking by stopping identifying. And that can only happen when we can't see something discernible. We can't say, like, this is an apple, a tree, this measures one metre, etc. cetera. Um, so he says abstract art because you can't see what it is, particularly if it's very new. So you haven't had time to like discern it and go, okay, that's a Jackson Pollock, or he was talking mostly about music and literature. But abstract art, because you can't like categorize it and identify it can lead you temporarily out of this full system of, of, sorry, of identification. Um, So he basically says that whilst you're listening to, for example, Schomburg, or Mahler, or you're reading Edgar Allan Poe, or Franz Kafka, um, or you're looking at the plays of Samuel Beckett. There's a moment in which you kind of get temporarily lost, absorbed in the in the artwork. Okay, so I think for us, maybe it's easy to think of some techno music, maybe ambient music like the Orb or Orbital, um, Pink Floyd, or also if you know classical, then then Mahler. Um, And the way when you're listening to it, you get kind of temporarily lost. You're no longer thinking about your phone that's about to go off uh, or checking your email or what you're doing tomorrow or politics. You're no longer categorizing things and you're no longer thinking this is X, Y, Z. Uh, you know, you're no longer thinking if you're listening to Britney Spears, you're probably thinking something relating to the lyrics. So that's a form of categorization and, and, and identification. But you're not thinking anything specific, and you're not able to really put your finger on what's happening with the music. So you kind of lose your false boundaries between yourself and nature temporarily, but that can't last long. Okay. So Adorno says at some point you would turn back into yourself. And I think what's useful there is thinking about um if you're looking at abstract art or actually any kind of I suppose, good painting in the museum um, and you get that moment when you get kind of lost, you forget like the gallery assistant, you forget the people around you, you forget the crowds. Um, you have a similar experience, but at some point, because you tend to get crowds in, in, in state museums, you're going to get somebody brush against you or talk loudly or the museum assistant asks you to move away from the painting and you're snapped out of that moment of being lost in the artwork and you return back into yourself that that's the actual moment of shudder, is returning back into yourself and realising that you've lost something, and realising that that returning into yourself is the false condition. you're, You're returning to the false separation between yourself and the object, so immediately it's a kind of loss of what you would otherwise have, but it's exemplary of what we could have if we could stop thinking in terms of this conflict between ourselves and the outside or nature.
0: Yeah, there's something I actually want to, I want to use that point you just made to kind of push back on what you said about Andrew Yang memes. But before that, just for the audience, one one thing I find useful for understanding Adorno and identity thinking for me was the essay, um, well, it's, a, it's an against epistemology. And there's particularly, I think it's a chapter or a subheader, but it's called The Tyranny of Identity, which like lays it out very well. It helped me understand it but I find Adorno to be somewhat of a Nietzschean in the sense that he kind of sees like a parallel between the Christian theocratic way of categorizing things this dominance over nature with the enlightenment thinking and the idea of that we can know everything and we can scientifically put everything in categorize, categorize everything and put words on to uh, define things. And, um, like, in that regard, he thinks that we didn't really, ass- we still are, are kind of in the same problem, which is, I would say, in many ways, this is like a proto postmodernist critique, in the sense that it sort of questions a lot of the Enlightenment assumptions, and sees actually a lot of things in common with the Enlightenment and with pre-Enlightenment, like the problems that still exist, that just kind of were secularized, to, to put it that way. And I think Nisha is in this way a proto-postmodernist and we of course we later got people like Leotard um, Foucault who kind of really questioned stuff like this but would you say Adorno is like a proto-postmodernist because I want to ask that because that's a like a kind of a maybe a difficult question and a debatable question before I get into how I think um really what you said before about the shutter effect might apply to Yang Ming memes but first I want to Kind of get your thoughts on that. Like, is Adorno sort of in that postmodern lineage?
1: Um, yeah, I think he is very much a precursor to postmodernism. I think the, the the time that elapses from his last unfinished work, Aesthetic Theory, which he was writing in 1969 when he died, and the advent of like theoretical postmodernism is is very brief. In fact, they may overlap. I don't know. You tell me because I don't know what would be considered the first really postmodern work um I think I think must it overlap g- yeah
0: gone. genealogy of morality for me I don't know I'm sure there's something before that but I think like Nietzsche Beyond Good and Evil and Genealogy of Morality are sort of but you would consider that postmodernist
1: oh yeah okay but but in terms of what people would normally call like postmodern being something from the I guess starting in the 60s 70s
0: oh so yeah, yeah. I, well I mean there's two strands of postmodernism and this I guess um is like I mean, we can talk about postmodernism as an epoch, which is like obviously kind of a lot of people think start in the 60s, some in the 80s, or like postmodernism as sort of a break from modernist assumptions. Whereas that's where I see like the postmodernist as cultural theory, as a societal condition. That's more Jameson, Mark Fisher, uh, Leotard and Baudrillard as well. But as theory, I think Foucault embodies that because Foucault... Like totally deconstructed. Okay, but
1: Foucault would have would have overlapped Adorno at some point, no?
0: That's what yeah. I mean. Yeah, is I think I think that Foucault is sort of a disciple. He, I mean, he he attributes his own work to Nietzsche, and I think Adorno is yeah. also a kind of, in many ways, in line with what Nietzsche was doing.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I have a feeling that there are a lot of I I don't really know to what degree they corresponded. The postmodernist. I don't even know when they started to call themselves post even if they called themselves post-modernists. Maybe it's stuff I should know. Um, I don't, th- I don't all think all they this, did. It's kind of emerged later on. Yeah, I, I don't know to what degree there was correspondence or or or, or there was a, even agreement between um the these early postmodernists who would have been like part of the uprisings in Paris in 68. And the Frankfurt School, because of course Adorno in 69 was against his students who were uprising, who upright who, their uprisings were very much ref, kind of reflective or a continuation of what happened in 68 across Europe, um, and which most famously we know as you know occurring in Paris. Um so you would think that there would that Adorno may have been seen as this very reactionary figure by by what became the postmodernists, I, I would guess. Um, but I still think all the same, he he's kind of um dislike of of what leotard would call metanarratives this kind of incredulity towards metanarratives um is very present in adorno who won't even support you know a strong uh opposition to capitalism called something like you know communism or or whatever you know he's kind of reticent because he's kind of thinks that everything will revert back into um into barbarity potentially because he's so concerned about the barbarity that emerged out of uh, out of fascism, uh, but also you know I think there was an awareness of what had been going on in in communist in Soviet Russia. In fact, there was there was an awareness. So, for Adorno, who was a German Jew who had been exiled during the war, who come back a few years after World War II to Germany to rebuild, he was very conscious of not reverting back into the horrors of of, of World War II and totalitarianism in general. Um, so he wasn't able to say like this will work, that will work. I mean, he had just he, he had a huge amount of doubt towards towards any kind of program basically. So I think that that definitely fits in with postmodernism.
0: Yeah, the way I feel about Adorno is I I kind of is the way I feel a lot about with postmodernists in general, or even whatever, regardless if one wants to call them a postmodernist. But people theorists labeled in that milieu uh, is that. They're really good skeptics. And I can't really say that they're wrong, but there's something really frustrating about them in that they don't propose any alternatives and kind of give like no way out, especially Adorno. I mean, like didn't support, obviously, the 68 protests. He called the cops on them. Uh, He seemed like a party pooper. But see, okay, back to this idea about dominance over nature and categorizing. I think there is like an element of truth to that. I really find it hard to imagine how it's really possible to avoid that entirely because I think to some extent you do need to kind of have some kind of control over nature to an extent. Like, I mean, modern agriculture was that to a large extent. that's kind of what raised um, the human population so much Um, and uh, the industrial revolution, the nature at the end of the day kind of doesn't really care about us i mean it'll get rid of us if it it wants to but um i see like how do we not control nature i feel this is where i side more with the marxists in that i think okay things aren't going to be perfect but for like this survival of humans to what extent is yeah i
1: think i don't think is coming from something that's achievable i think it's just coming from from trying to avoid uh returning back into the into the situation that he that he lived through, you know, that that he'd escaped from, mm. um trying to revert back into into the conditions of the Holocaust, basically. um So,
0: would you say his bourgeois background kind of played well, also yeah, a in, role? Yeah, in, in,
1: in my next book, I definitely talk about that, and, and 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 to what degree um the Frankfurt School itself and and the continued popularity of the Frankfurt School is a result of. uh the bourgeois class trying to maintain stasis rather than have a revolution because the bourgeois class have a lot to lose and potentially more to lose than than the other two social classes. Um, so I do talk about that, but I talk about how, whether that is fairly a fairly rational response and that every class will respond in their own way to the conditions of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but uh, he's kind of thinking about he doesn't want to go along with anything that could be a false promise. So he basically won't say, hey, let's have a revolution, because he thinks that could revert back into its opposite. Um, so he basically goes down the only channel which is left, which is art, because art can feign a removal from capitalism, uh, you know, in a society which he thinks is absolutely capitalist. So he's already saying, like, there is no alternative, this uh, term that Fisher used, which actually comes down from Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Um Ladonna is already saying that and he really believes that there is no alternative, Um, but then he's saying that there is this thing, art, which can basically um, co-opt capitalism. So what uh, capitalist objects do um, is they create some kind of aura around themselves, which gives them properties in excess of their actual material properties. So they start to control humans. So the the kind of the white shirt, which will make you more attractive to people, the trainers, which will make you more sporty, whatever. Um, Adorno basically says that the artwork does that, but to a greater degree by saying that it's autonomous from the system itself. So an artwork kind of claims to be outside reality and you know to have a kind of aura, which is semi-spiritual. And Adorno is basically saying that, um, what happens when you're looking at an artwork and you become lost in it, and you suddenly snap out of that and you have this shudder, is a shudder of the realization because of the kind of great the, the great contrast between this kind of suspension of your senses you work you were experiencing temporarily, this quasi-transcendental loss in the artwork, because of the contrast between that and the return back into yourself when you realize the artwork is only made of, for example, canvas and oil and pigment, etc. Um, you suddenly realize the true conditions of the artwork being made, being labored by human hands and and human hands working on um natural materials, wood, cotton, uh, pigment, oil, et cetera. With music, it's much the same. And actually he was talking about music more. But with music, you get the same thing because if you' if you're in a concert hall and you're kind of getting lost in a Schomburg, and then at some point you snap out of that and you see the musicians who are basically laborers. You don't think literally they're laborers, but they are, you're kind of aware of that. Um, and the instruments which are made of wood and metal, et cetera, you return to the material conditions of labor, human hands working on, on natural elements that have always been there, and to our linkedness with with, uh, with nature, but also the kind of perpetua- perpetual force condition of our separation from that nature as well. So this is, um, I haven't mean, forgotten why you asked me this, but I think that kind of explains it. Um, this is what Adorno is talking about happening. And this is what, as you're going to ask me this, um, could also kind of happen with memes, I think. Um, but the thing with memes is they, and, and with these for example, the Yang campaign, um, they happen so quickly that I don't know that we're often led into this moment of like, dreamy loss uh, of a kind of uh transcendentalism where we're kind of suspended somehow um you know like you might have if you're smoking weed and you're listening to pink floyd which i haven't done since i was a teenager or not both of those things at once but um you know it's the only way to of...
0: listen to pink floyd sorry <laughs> it's the best way to listen to pink floyd yeah i,
1: I think so probably i i don't do hardly anything anymore in terms of like substances but um it's, I'm, it is good if i recall but um, The point is that this kind of moment of suspension uh, I don't think one is getting it very much off the internet I think you're getting more of a brick wall so you're getting less of like a floating away with the music or artwork and you're getting more of something that's that immediately sends you back on yourself so if what Dawn is looking at is uh, you look at an artwork you get lost and then you suddenly get snapped back into yourself and then you realize the the real conditions of of, of human labor Um, with looking at memes and basically the internet in general, where you have image after image after image, and most of which are very cynical, I think we have a constant rebounding back on ourselves. Um, So it's like a cycle of cynicism where you look at something, you hope to get something from it, and you don't really, and you return back to you. And I think that what can happen through that eventually is something might snap, and you may, through just a kind of uh, anger depression or anxiety, the kind of which Fisher talks about capitalism inducing, that you may kind of start looking for answers elsewhere, that you might get fed up with a whole damn thing and then start to embrace uh, Marxism or something. So I think the process is actually quite different. And I don't th- I don't think we should be looking at really, um, not because you asked me, but just because I think generally people try and do this. We shouldn't be looking towards how Adorno uh, could be applied today in terms of like, you know, the meme is the new uh, Schomburg musical piece, piece or the new uh, Kafka <laughs> Kafka story, um, we should be, I think, more applying his method of how he thought it was valuable to examine uh, art and also popular culture and 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 see what's emerging today and how those things today might be able to help the left. But I think it's very unlikely they're going to be helping the left in the same way. Maybe describes. we
0: need more shutter effects. Or,
1: exactly. Or we need the shutter happening... Um, through memes we need to be making different memes so it goes back to these slow memes to these slow memes but i think to have anything like a slow meme we need to change our relationship with the internet so we'd have to make a concerted effort amongst us for example us online leftists um, who have podcasts and what have you to um, maybe use certain platforms to maybe uh, change our internet habits and to start distributing among us slower kind of
0: Uh, artworks. Um, So yeah, I was actually going to get into memes, but before that I noticed a bit of a big contradiction with Adorno's writings. So to what extent and how Adorno feels, so you know how Adorno, he describes a lot of these kind of bourgeois art is what he describes as having this shutter effect, like things like Kafka or listening to Mozart or stuff like that. To what extent does one really have to be from a certain background or have what could one call cultural capital to appreciate that sort of thing. Like maybe one has to kind of be accustomed to that thing to even appreciate the artistic beauty of it. Because in Adorno's culture industry writing, he also says something that I think is in direct conflict with this, because in the culture industry as a passage, which I actually cite in my um, video about hip hop coming up two videos from now, where Adorno says, people who are so used to the culture industry products, like culture industry standardized music, they get to a point where they they have this regression of listening where they can't appreciate what he thinks is like serious music, good music. And um, like, for example, he he describes about how people who are used to like pop hits will find classical music boring. Yeah. Doesn't that kind of conflict with the whole shutter effect? Well, because how I, if people are so dumbed down by the as he would think anyway, I think, I think his views can be a bit elitist, but if people are so accustomed to standardization can really, I I, I think the shutter effect is still possible, but maybe it's just with different things. I think it's the way he's applying the shutter effect is very narrow to a certain kind of art.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah. I I mean, we kind of covered that maybe before in in the terms of saying that uh, we don't have to look for things that directly map onto Adorno's theory, but more, using the way he analyzed uh, popular culture and high culture and 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 looking for what in our culture might not perhaps create a shudder effect but might throw people onto a leftist uh, framework or a different way of thinking so again memes are generally highly cynical and we don't get much from them so you have like Mark Fisher memes that um, don't generally make you think very much about Mark Fisher they more, makes you think about how Mark Fisher has been co-opted by the capitalist system, i.e. the kind of social media algorithm so that, you know, people are making very kind of crass, stupid memes about him and his theory uh, because that's the way to get noticed. But that feeds directly into what he said about music uh, and art being co-opted by capitalism. So he talked about Kurt Cobain, for example, in um, Capitalist Realism. Um, So I think when we look at that, we kind of get disappointed and actually people get very angry with that kind of thing. Um, And I think the thing is that that won't create a shudder, but it might eventually make something snap in us and it might make us willing to then go out and create the real conditions for revolution. So it's not really what Donna was talking about. But what Donna was talking about, I think is possible. If you look at, I cannot think of an, an example right now, but there are so many, many examples that people will be able to think of uh of films that are kind of sentimental um of uh you know art artworks or documentaries that are kind of you know that have a kind of ambient feel that have at least passages you know where you you do get that kind of quasi-transcendental experience. Um you know I, I think it's still possible that somebody could be in a in a movie theater. Of course that's increasingly rare. Uh but at a music concert um where they they feel kind of somehow temporarily transported and then they lose that moment of transportation and return back into themselves and and, and realize suddenly like the falseness of their normal conditions that that is surely still possible i think it's yeah. maybe increasingly not possible because uh increasingly impossible because if we're not actually looking at our phones whilst we're at a concert we're thinking about Mm. our phones, we're thinking about looking at our phones when we finish the concert. So the very existence of uh, social media and smartphones makes this experience less and less possible. But that's where I think we have to slow down a bit the process, Mm. because it's not like the internet in itself makes this experience possible. It's a certain use of the internet, where it's been, the internet itself has been co-opted by capitalism. So you know, as for as for whether we're Adorno's experience is elitist, well, yes, but the internet does make a situation where we could potentially make uh, abstract art that could induce the shudder and spread it over the internet. It's just would anyone really sit down and block out all other stimuli long enough to get that sensation from the internet? I mean it could happen, but we think we'd have to we have to kind of educate each other and encourage each other to use the internet. In that way, I'm not very good at it, so I can't um, imagine that other people are. But then, you know, talking about whether people are liable to go to a concert or even have the sensibility to spend time with a piece of music or art to get that kind of sensation of shudder, um, I, I mean, a great many people aren't. But does that mean adorno's wrong for saying that's where that experience is located? Because you know what he's talking about is no. I think I, think he,
0: like, I don't think he's wrong. I just think his examples are just kind of outdated
1: well they're outdated um yes that's interesting but also bear in mind that when he's talking about schomburg um well maybe it's better to use example of edgar and poe and beethoven they were beethoven i remember they weren't weren't contemporary (laughs) he talks about uh beethoven in in a chapter called I think it's society, that chapter in... in, in the, he uh,
0: talks about in the culture in, industry, too. In aesthetic always... theory.
1: Yeah, in aesthetic theory, he talks about it directly in relation to the shudder. And you're like, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony uh, is not new, because Adorno also says elsewhere in, in aesthetic theory, you need the experience of the new to create shudder. But when when I read it kind of closely throughout my um, PhD thesis, I kind of thought, well, hang on. What he's really saying, perhaps, is that it's a shudder that creates the new not the new that creates the shudder it's it's a kind of moment of dissonance in in music or abstraction that shocks you out of your normal complacency uh, and you're kind of going along with the false conditions of of capitalism um it, it's this moment that creates the conditions of the new that is of a vibrant moment of living you know is that that can that creates the new not the new that necessarily creates the shudder. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And, and so, I so just in that said- case, in that case, we sorry to interrupt, but we could recuperate Beethoven and put him on the internet and maybe many people could have that experience because they could experience Beethoven where they otherwise couldn't. But having said that, I'm not saying I think that this happens very well through Beethoven. That's a Adorno. I think there are things that happen that we could kind of spread around the internet that if people were kind of, um, encouraged to sit down with them in certain ambience you know could maybe get the shutter off off their smartphone or off their computer but i think we'd have to do a lot more research into how do we kind of engineer an art that can create a shutter through through the internet i think that's the thing that i haven't i'm not saying i've really found it very much
0: so i th- i don't think adorno is wrong at all with with the shutter the one thing i would just add is that i think it's a very relative and different for each person. Slow, it can be slow, or it can be like very speedy. Uh, like I can think of many examples of things that ca- that are shutter effect for me. So like um, you mentioned vaporwave earlier. I think Soviet wave is, has like this effect. There's, there's a couple of songs in particular. I can maybe link one in the description, one of my favorites, but I think Soviet wave had kind of a, a certain role to play in popularizing Like the resurgence of people to look into Marxism, Leninism, or just history in general. Like people have, you know, you can argue whether like maybe one disagrees with this, but I think it plays a role in why a lot of people have more sympathies for the Soviet Union than they used to have. Is like this kind of iconography. Like, I, I don't know if you're aware, but there's like this whole trend of Soviet wave, but also having like the vaporwave aesthetics of just this people living in the Soviet Union, just walking around. It's it's a yeah. popular thing. I mean, the
1: only but, the only thing with that is is that Adorno would say that plays back into identification because you you can see stuff happening because it's, it, it's directly political. So so you you're not getting. This is that where much. I
0: disagree with him a lot. Is that I I, I think being over yeah because I know he has that line where he says overtly political art is the least. Sorry, he said the most revolutionary art is the least political art. I, I don't know if I agree with that. And I know he has a lot of qualms with Soviet realism. I have I have qualms with the Soviet Union kind of deterring other art except Soviet realism. Like, I think that's, that, that was a totalitarian act. But I don't think there was something wrong with Soviet realist art in the way he does. Like I th- He thought Soviet realist art was like this effort to kind of, you know, it was instrumental reason. Like, it, it was art with a purpose. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's just another expression. I think it can be really powerful. Uh, for people like um I, like I'll give uh, back to the Soviet wave thing is there's, there's a couple of anthems of the Soviet union with vaporwave remix or synth wave remix. And I kind of, some of them give you like real goosebumps or it doesn't even have to be vaporwave. It can be all kind of music propaganda, so to speak. Like there's a, there's a, there's a couple of versions of it, but there's the Che Guevara song. That's very, very popular. um Is it, it's, a, it's, a, it's about Che Guevara and it's in Spanish, but it's it's a song, that, I don't know, it gives you goosebumps and it makes you really like want to look into this history. They, I think there is that shudder effect and I don't know how to really, I think you experience it in many different ways. So like these are the ways I experience it, but you mentioned Andrew Yang before and I think maybe you dismissed it too much because I actually think the Andrew Yang memes is like one of the reasons why he did so well in the first place, because he was like, no one knew who he was. He's never been in politics. He was he was taken as a complete joke, but he had a lot of support on the internet. And I think these memes, which might seem a little stupid, like the money printing memes or like the everyone gets thousand dollar memes, I think that was absurdist because it kind of, it really um, normalized something that, or to an extent, normalized something that was considered absurd, which shouldn't be absurd. Like the idea that everyone should get free money, like a basic income. In America, at least, that that's a totally absurd. Like uh, people would say like, free money, what do you mean? Like in this, you know, Protestant work ethic country, it's totally absurd. But I think the absurdity, the intentional absurdity of just Andrew Yang there with a money printer, just giving people free money, people doing, buying whatever they want with it. I think that's sort of, to an extent, normalized his idea, and I don't, I don't really like Andrew Yang, wasn't my favorite candidate by any means, but I think this is one of the good things about his campaign. And obviously, he didn't play a big role in the meme himself, like it's really bottom up. It was just his supporters, some who used to be, as you mentioned, ex Trump supporters, which I think that's a sign that's a good thing is the fact that he got some Trump supporters and, um, kind of like I think to an extent normalized this idea of a basic income. So for us, I might or for some people, it just might be kind of stupid, but I think for other people, maybe those Yang memes did have like this absurdist effect of breaking their preconceptions. Yeah, it, it,
1: it definitely may, it may have got him. It may have got him. Well, it definitely made him more known and more popular. Um, but it wasn't really taken in the, in the spirit that he he intended. So, I mean, I'm not saying there was no um, positive outcome for Yang in that respect. He still had to. Drop out of the race, but he would have had to anyway. But he's a lot, a great deal more famous now because of that. But what I, what I really mean to say in that passage uh, in the book that's forthcoming in September about Fisher and and Frankfurt School is that one can't really program a kind of cogent uh, discourse through the internet. You don't know what will come out. It's not that positive things won't come out. It's like right now this is very current uh, Marxists. Is trending in relation to the England football team because the England football team take the knee in support mm-hmm. of Black Lives Matter be through, be, be, um, before matches. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Harry Kane wore a rainbow coloured i.e., uh, kind of pro LGBTQ armbound armband, armband um, in the in the last 16 match, the previous match. Um and also the Gareth Southgate wrote a kind of essay-length article in support of that lives matter and taking the knee just before the tournament started this is the england manager so this is something incredible that this is happening you know with the england team because they've always been associated you know with slightly kind of slightly kind of lad kind of culture slightly kind of macho culture which in england means you know a little bit bigoted um but, um, of course, this isn't Marxism. But the thing is that there have been prominent politicians like Nigel Farage that have called the England team Marxist for this reason. Priti Patel, the Home Secretary in England, won't support or said she didn't like the fact that um, that England are taking the knee. And, and a politician called Lee Anderson from the Tory party, in England, in a, a member of parliament, said he won't support the team for this reason. So this is kind of all crazy. But it's been kind of flipped round. A lot of leftists are now writing on Twitter. There's over 10,000 tweets probably moving moving towards 15,000 by now today uh which kind of joke that um have an english team kind of improved since they adopted marxism so it's kind of funny but the thing is of course this isn't at all a marxist discourse it's kind of people reacting against people distorting what marxism means ie people kind of using this cultural marxist term to uh to uh, disregard uh identity politics but then to conflate that with marxism it's taking that and 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 kind of turning that on its head saying you know well hey look the marxists are doing really well now they've improved at football but no one is actually talking about what marxism really means um, which is unfortunate but it still remains that if you were a street campaigner selling socialist newspapers for example or you went out with a stall campaigning talking about socialism or marxism you know people still do this kind of thing you could engage the public and say well hey have you seen this debate about Or, you know, this thing about people calling England team Marxist. What do you think about that? And that can lead you on to then talking about what Marxism really is. So you do get these weird openings that happen randomly. So the thing with the Internet is because it's not really about getting people to click based on what they like or don't like. Or based on following some kind of progression, like you know, A, B, C, I'm trying to learn something, or, you know, or rather one, two, three, you know, going through a process of discovering something. Because it's more about just getting people to click full stop. And it's probably easier for the companies to do that by just kind of getting people emoted, getting people angry about something. You're actually getting a situation where you know, you no, you're no more getting um, moderate uh, politics turn up than you are getting uh, extremist politics turn up. But there's no name when either will turn up. Um, so I think the thing is there, we can seize upon moments upon which these things turn up, uh, you know, the mention of Marxism online um and try and use that but the thing is really ultimately we are do a lot better if we can slow down this whole process and get people to follow through uh caution thought processes again so i would suggest that we use the internet to get people going onto the streets post lockdown uh into workplaces in their own workplaces even uh and getting talking to people uh, and we could coordinate that through the internet. We can have forums that are a bit like the ones used on the Labour campaign in the UK and the Sanders campaign. And we could be like going, okay, we, let's have a happening uh, kind of pro-leftist art happening, happening in Brighton in the UK tomorrow at the same time as one is happening in New York. But also let's have someone go and speak to those old people who have problems uh, with paying their heating bills in France. You know, we we could be coordinating things on multiple levels all the time that are aimed at having real discussions um, in real life rather than uh, basically having to like tag our theories on to memes that, that misrepresent uh, Marxism.
0: How I feel about memes is is that um, they can kind of be gateway drugs. They don't necessarily transfer ideology directly, but they can kind of, well, in many ways, often they, they have the most appeal with people who already kind of agree to an extent or are open to what that message is. But in some cases, they can kind of like implant seeds. So, for example, like, you know, these tanky memes for some people might have a problem with them. Some are less cringe than others, but uh, I think that I'll give an example of one of the good tanky memes that I, I think is pretty good is there's the Castro meme, like the Chad virgin meme where they show Castro looking like a Chad and they show a capitalist and the capitalist says, so you're just going to take all my slaves and property. And Castro's like, yes. <laughs> so I think, and I think like that's the kind of stuff. What it does is it kind of like normalizes stuff and it's like really straightforward it, i think it has a certain level of efficacy yeah but,
1: but absolutely, absolutely. regarding
0: absolutely. of what but regarding a meme starting kind of political movements i mean wouldn't that kind of contradict what adorno is saying which is something i really disagree with that the least political art has the most political potential because Well, it does, it does
1: contradict that yeah but i'm not really saying they 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 would start um political movements or so maybe you're not saying that i'm saying that but um, mm. I don't think they necessarily would. What, what Adorno would say is that we need much more theoretical reflection before we go acting. And I, and I think that's true. But I think we also need to speak to actual workers and not, you know, amongst academics and, and left tube people. Um, so I think we, you know, we could, rather than kind of relying on those occasional moments of, a, you know, a good left meme, uh, maybe inspiring somebody or leading someone to pick up. Um, some left-wing theoretical texts, and also, you know, to join local uh, grassroots activist groups, you know, rather than relying on occasionally people doing those things on the back of a meme they saw, we could be using the internet to organise constant kind of reading groups, support groups, um, art happenings, concerts, etc. as in, you know, what Fisher referred to in the acid-communist introduction, uh, we need a counterculture. Um, so yeah, I mean that's not really and, and also relying on figurative meme making that Adorno would hate is so much so much as trying to get away from that.
0: Well, and also memes and I would say kind of cultural production in general, it can kind of allow other people get other people to also spread the same stuff. And you, you often look at like right wingers throughout history, they often describe Marxism, which they often they use to describe all leftism. As a like a kind of cancer, like a virus. And I think they, they say that because, yeah, like sometimes when you have like this consciousness that raises class consciousness, whatever you want to call it, um, it can like have the, it can just spread because other people are they want to like uh, they want to also spread that idea. So how I see with memes, it's like it's horizontalist culture is sometimes you. You can get more and more radicalized just on the internet. Um, I'm not saying that was my experience, but this was this is the experience of a lot of people. Like um, I mentioned in the the meme warfare video that a lot of people got radicalized by the Bernie Sanders campaign. And also weirdly enough, Andrew Yang meme groups. Not in this, not the Andrew Yang campaign necessarily, but there was a lot of meme groups in which people get radicalized in. I'm in a lot of meme groups, not not so much those ones, but I was in the Ocasio Cortez meme group. And Ocasio-Cortez, despite having like very moderate kind of social democratic views, there was a lot of like anarchists, a lot of Marxists, all, all kind of different people in her groups who are like just bombarding. But I thought what, some of them were really good memes. And a lot of those people became like pretty far left. Um, I mean, there's some pretty actually prominent leftists. Uh, I mean, like I'm not saying you should take them seriously, but just like people on Twitter who have like followings who are kind of like Marxists. Marxist-Leninist, like uh, there's this guy called Comrade Waluigi or Luigi, something like that. But yeah. he's a pretty big following. And this guy like openly says he was radicalized in the Andrew Yang meme group. Like That's what started his journey. And I, th- that's why I think, especially for Zoomers, the fast-paced yeah. culture is not always a bad thing. I think what what it depends really is whether you're just preaching to the choir, which can't happen with leftist circles. It's like I think you mentioned the Mark Fisher meme group. That's very much the case. There is like, it's just people who are already have like a certain politics who are just kind of, you know, feeding into each other's own filter bubble. But I think the, the speed in which memes, uh, spread, if the content has some messages within it, it can be good because it can spread what normally takes a long time to learn just through memes. Like uh, there's a, there's a thing in a lot of Marxist memes that they kind of say, why read Das Kapital when you can just learn through memes? And there's like all these, I'm not saying that's true, but like there's all these little memes kind of describing like Marxist things, like the falling rate of profit, commodity fetishism. And they show like uh, the, the, the um, crisis of overproduction. There's this Bugs Bunny meme where it says, uh, got not enough carrots. And it says too many carrots. <laughs> and it, it like shows like these basic ideas with memes. Like there is that kind of potential um, to, to, to describe things that in a very simple way, like, for example, Marx, I don't, I, I disagree with this idea that everyone should read capital because a lot of his ideas, not all are actually kind of common sense. Um, like they're easy to understand uh, if, if you just, you know, take away the ideology, the neoliberal ideology that often blinds us from seeing it. But I think there are ways to communicate things in simple ways. And that's, that's where I do see the value of memes um, but what I will I will add is that the memes can't really be top down like it never really works if it's the politician trying to make memes for themselves and their teams It's always like a horizontalist endeavor where they kind of spread among like the supporters. So yeah. yeah
1: I, I agree I agree with you. I, I I think that's very much the case. I think the, the the attempts by the left to make a meme campaign that that would rival the alt right campaign of 2016 that may have helped Trump get in, into power, I actually don't know that even did help him that much but this kind of notion that we need to do that it always fails when it's when it's um organized by uh, a formal campaign it needs to be organic growing up from from other places um i mean i do think that memes memes for sure are a great thing i'm not saying let's do get rid of memes um i think even you know the the terrible ones we have can function like i say i mean they're so deliberately cynical a lot of the left memes that they may kind of like um, they may lead us to go and look elsewhere as in
0: Ayo, for some reason the recording just decided to cut off and I forgot to hit re-record so unfortunately I'm gonna have to stop the podcast right here guys I would definitely love to continue this conversation and the rest of the conversation I had with Mike was actually super interesting and I really wish that you guys could have heard all of it But anyways, you will definitely hear Mike Watson come on the show again, and I will also be on his show on the acid left in a couple of weeks anyway. So at least this makes this episode a little bit shorter, and you will hear more of our conversations soon, I promise you.